Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. For decades, China has been thought of as a climate villain. It's the world's most populous country and the largest greenhouse gas emitter. You look at any China curve over the last four decades, they all go up. Population, GDP, energy consumption, emissions. There is no exception. But what if 2024 marks an exception? What if something starts to go down? What if China starts getting serious about climate? What if, what if? This could be the year when China's climate story starts to change. There are, though, some big ifs. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. On the show today as well, listen in why people on the prairies are so worried about drought in the middle of winter. They're looking for ways to cope. And we're going to talk about why it's getting easier to turn your old gas-powered car into an EV. But first, China could be on the brink of a new, cleaner era and what that could mean for a warming world. And What on Earth producer Vivian Luck joins me now with the story. Hi. Hello, Laura. Why could 2024 be a pivotal year for China? Well, like you said just now, for a pretty long time, China has been known for doing major damage to the climate. It's the world's second largest economy. It produces a lot of the things that many of us buy. So clothes, toys, household appliances. It has less than 20 percent of the world's population. Yet, the country emits roughly 30% of global carbon emissions, mostly from burning fossil fuels. And not only is China this big, bad polluter in and of itself, it's kind of been dragging the rest of the world down with it. If you look at the period since uh, the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, China was responsible for almost all of the increase in global emissions, about 90% of the increase in global emissions from 2015 to 2022. So China was not just the the world's largest carbon emitter uh, by far, but also the dominant reason why global emissions kept going up. That's Larry Miliverta. He's with the Finnish think tank Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air. He co-wrote a report last November suggesting that China's role in a warming world could change dramatically this year. Lowry says that after carbon emissions rose in China during the first quarter of 2023, and by the way, that was actually the highest first quarter jump on record, he says though they may have peaked, and more importantly, those emissions may actually start to fall this year, which, if it's true, that would be a pretty big deal. Because it's highly likely that when China's emissions go into decline, global emissions will follow. That's something else. What is driving that possible decline? So it is true that China is the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter, but it is also the world's largest producer of clean energy. That's a transformation that happened very recently and really quickly. Lowry says that last year, there was a record surge in solar and wind power in China. 
the country installed so much solar, it was actually double that of the United States. Also, China doubled its production of EV batteries in the same year. All of that? Just in the last year? Yes. It's pretty impressive. Even the International Energy Agency says they believe this green tech boom is just going to keep continuing. But here's something that that makes me, well, it confuses me. China didn't sign on to the global pledge at the UN climate talks last year, the one that committed countries to triple their renewable energy capacity by 2030. No, and that was a pretty noticeable development, but it did sign a similar agreement with just the U.S. Now, the other thing that's been happening in China over the last few years is the slump in the real estate sector. That means less demand for steel and cement, which is pretty significant because China produces more than half the world's steel and cement. And those sectors, as you would know, Laura, produce a lot of carbon emissions. So if you consider all that, the green tech boom and the decline of the steel and cement sectors, Lowry says they all but guarantee a decline in China's CO2 emissions in 2024. I am still, though, trying to wrap my head around how China got to where it is now. Like, how does a country flip a switch from being a top polluter to leading the world in clean tech? Okay, to be clear, China is still burning fossil fuels. We'll get to that in a bit. But to your question about the country's dramatic transition, Lowry says it comes down to two things. One, a very clear directive from China's President Xi Jinping. The pandemic shows us that mankind needs a self-reforming. We have to form quickly a green way of development and of life and build the ecological civilization and a beautiful earth. That's a newscast from China Global Television Network. Four years ago, she announced that China was going to try and hit peak carbon emissions before 2030. So in other words, there won't be any increase in emissions after that year. He also said the country will aim to be carbon neutral by 2060, meaning any pollution that is spews into the air will be offset in some way. So this sent a strong message to businesses and investors that solar, wind, hydro, electric cars, this is where you should be expanding. The other game changer, according to Lowry, is China's crackdown on real estate lending. A lot of state-owned enterprises, a lot of local governments, a lot of private uh, venture capital investors and so on had the idea that clean energy and clean tech are the next thing um, uh, for that money to go into. And, and that really led to a, an expansion that, that is just beyond what anyone could have imagined a few years ago. Lowry says the clean energy sector grew China's GDP by 40 percent last year. So if it continues to expand the sector at the pace that it did, Lowry says that should be enough to cover the country's energy demand. And if that happens, that's when we might start seeing China shrink its carbon footprint sometime this year, which, as we already talked about, it would be a huge step forward for the world. Okay, but I noticed there were one, two, I think, ifs in what you said. (laughs) Um, Is there something that is standing in the way of that actually happening? Mm, Good catch. Yes, there is a caveat, and it has less to do with whether the clean energy boom in China will continue. Most analysts agree it probably will. But it has more to do with how quickly China can move away from something else. We are only starting 
to stare at the other side of our climate story, which is how do we get rid of coal? That's Li Shuo. He's the director of the China Climate Hub at the Asia Society Policy Institute. He was in Beijing when I spoke to him last. So up until this recent push for clean tech, China has always relied on coal as its main energy source. Coal is, of course, the dirtiest and most polluting fossil fuel. Now, in theory, as more clean energy projects come online, China shouldn't need all that coal anymore. The IEA even expects Chinese coal demand to fall this year. Except China is still approving new coal power plants, even as it pushes renewables. So that's that's our irony. And I think a big part of this is um, because China has traditionally sent all these sectors as a way to boost its economic growth. Uh, the country has not been so selective in terms of which ones are good for the, uh, for the environment as well as the economy. So to put that into perspective, the Global Energy Monitor says that last year, the equivalent of two new coal plants were being approved per week in China. That doesn't make sense because if there's all the investment in clean tech and the sector is driving all the economic growth, why would China need to keep building new coal plants? Well, this may sound familiar to us here in Canada, especially if you live in, say, Alberta or Saskatchewan. In China, there are concerns that renewable energy is not 100% reliable. The sun's not always shining and the wind's not always blowing. So, as the argument goes, you still need coal plants as backup. And this became pretty apparent two years ago when the impacts of climate change made China realize how vulnerable it was. Temperatures in parts of China have exceeded 40 degrees for more than a week now, and the country is dealing with a historic drought. The aerial images broadcast on Chinese TV show the Yangtze River in peril. Plunging water levels have dried up riverbanks. That was in the summer of 2022, and it was the most severe heat wave in China in six decades. It ravaged the country for more than 70 days and has set off wildfires and ruined crops. The conditions have also caused concerns about energy shortages. To address it, authorities in Chongqing have cut opening hours at malls to save on air conditioning until the situation changes. Elsewhere, authorities have switched off lights along the iconic Bundes. It wasn't just the heat. In the clip there, you heard them talking about the Yangtze River levels, but there was drought that also dried up dams and reservoirs. That's right. And so all of that made some provinces really worried about their reliance on renewables. Yunnan province is one of the biggest um, hydropower province in China. Actually, it faced a very serious energy shortage problem. And therefore, for Yunnan government, it has more reasonable claim to build up more coal power projects. That's Gao Yuhe. She also goes by Grace Gao. She's the lead of low-carbon energy development projects at Greenpeace Asia in Beijing. So Yunnan province, that's in southwestern China, it's a large producer of hydroelectricity, but it also depends on coal to supplement. And after the record drought in 2022, authorities there started thinking they can't depend on hydropower all the time. You know what? This is true. This does remind me of the things we heard after Alberta's grid alert. Absolutely. There are a lot of parallels we can draw. Now, even though China wants to speed up the green energy transition, which is, you know, something we want to do here in Canada as well, according to our federal government, 
The state government in China has made it very clear: grid security is most important. So it appears the provinces have some discretion. Local governments will choose coal power as their best solution. They think that okay, we have to build up more coal power projects to make ourselves independent to have enough energy supply. Now, Laura, there's also something else that Grace is concerned about. In January, the Chinese government introduced a new subsidy to keep the coal sector afloat for now. This way, it can be called upon whenever electricity needs go up. Except Grace worries these subsidies will actually incentivize provincial governments to open up new coal plants rather than phase them out. Well, then, given all that, what would it take for China to get away from coal and stay on track with its emissions targets? Well, Grace thinks the government needs to set more ambitious targets and be more specific about them. I mentioned earlier President Xi Jinping and his goal of hitting peak carbon emissions before 2030. He's never actually said what year exactly. Now, the International Energy Agency thinks 2025 is entirely within reach, and Grace agrees. And we heard at the beginning predictions that the peak is going to happen this year. But the point is, these are all projections made by analysts, and what they really want is for the Chinese government to make it official and lock in the earliest possible date. Well, then, what do you think Canadians can take away from the energy transition happening in China? Well, first, that it is entirely possible. Of course, we're two very different countries. China has way more people than we do. When we talk about fossil fuels in China, we're usually thinking about coal. In Canada, oil and gas come to mind. Canada is a democracy. China is not. It's decidedly not. It's it's a one-party state, meaning for better or worse, it can move. Pretty quickly and decisively when it wants to. For sure, we do things a lot differently here in Canada. But despite the differences, one political and climate watcher says, if the world's most populous country and largest carbon emitter can push through such a remarkable transformation, well, this gives Canadians little excuse not to do more for the climate. The but what about China crowd tend to at least implicitly be saying either. We should give up, or Canada should do nothing until China matches our ambition. Implicit in that argument is a message that Canada should somehow get a pass simply because our population is relatively low. But in fact, the average Canadian accounts for twice as many annual greenhouse gas emissions as the average Chinese. That's Catherine Harrison. She's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. And she certainly puts things in perspective when it comes to Canadians' climate responsibilities. But there's something else going on here. What a, what does all of what's going on in China potentially mean for this country's fossil fuel industry? Well, there is a bigger picture here, which is that renewable boom in China. It could have implications for Canada's liquefied natural gas ambitions. After years of controversy, the coastal gaslink pipeline project is almost finished. Kitimat's mayor says the industrial project has been great for residents, offering thousands of jobs and funding. I am here because I want to do what is right for my community, and for the generations to come. Chief Councillor Crystal Smith with the Heisla Nation is relieved the liquefied natural gas facility, now given an environmental certificate, will move ahead. 
As we speak, Laura, there are eight LNG projects that are in different stages of development across the country. LNG Canada and Kitimat, BC, it's aiming for first exports sometime next year. Now, besides creating jobs and boosting the economy, one of the arguments we hear about why Canada continues to pursue these fossil fuel projects, like despite our climate commitments, is that there's a demand for them in Asia. We're huge supporters of LNG because when we take our liquefied natural gas and we export it to China, to India, to Korea, to Japan, we allow them to get off of coal-fired power, reducing emissions by 50%. It's not perfect. I get it. The, the purists will come and say to me, Kevin, it's still a fossil fuel. I get that. But, you know, we have to help the world transition to lower emissions, too. And remember, BC only... So that's Kevin Falcon, the leader of the provincial opposition BC United Party. He was speaking with the CBC at the end of last year. And maybe it's true what he says about LNG demand in some of those markets in Asia. Except both Catherine Harrison and Li Shuo say you can probably count China out of that circle in the future. The International Energy Agency anticipates a decline in the global consumption of oil, coal and gas by 2030. And considering, again, this explosive growth of clean energy in China... Li Shuo says he really sees no need there for Canada's LNG. China is not very well endowed with regard to natural gas. So the, uh, the industry is not designed or tailored towards using that energy. So I am just hoping for a leap directly from coal to renewable energy sources. So Li Shuo believes China may be able to bypass so-called transitional fields and go straight to renewables. And remember Lawi Miliverta, who we heard from off the top? He says that could set a roadmap for developing countries to do the same. This all seems so much still as though it's a work in progress. But, but so far, China's attempt to leap from coal to clean energy seems like it could be a win for the climate. Except I wonder if that win comes at some cost. It does. So you can't dominate the market in solar panels, wind turbines, and EV batteries without so-called transition minerals. So things like nickel, lithium, copper, for example. And all those critical minerals are mined, processed, and refined somewhere. Last year, an international watchdog group called the Business and Human Rights Resource Center released a report about China's mining interests overseas. It cited 102 allegations of human rights and environmental abuses in 2021 and 2022. They allegedly happened in 18 countries, including Indonesia, Peru, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, and Zimbabwe. The allegations included violations of indigenous people's rights, unsafe working conditions, and water pollution. Now, I did ask for an interview with the report's authors, but they declined. The center says they're concerned for the safety of their staff in China. They also say there are policies in China around how to conduct business responsibly around the world. And there are industry guidelines around how to file grievances against mining companies. But participation is mostly voluntary. I, I do have to point out when I hear about this, though, that, that China's not alone in having its overseas mining companies be accused of human rights violations and of environmental violations. Canada, among other countries, companies from Canada are also being accused of those kinds of things with their companies acting abroad. But the other thing that, that also sounds familiar to me in all of this is this tension between trying to get at 
these minerals, developing them for renewables while respecting human rights, not degrading the environment. So where does that leave everything? Well, specific to China, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center says if that country can address those human rights concerns, then the green energy transition will be quick and a lot more just and fair. Vivian, thanks so much for this. We'll continue to follow this. You're welcome. So every time we talk about electric vehicles on this show, we get a lot of emails from people. They are asking questions about where they work best, when they work best, how sustainable they really are. And sometimes I feel like we'll never be able to answer them all. But there's also the question of all the gas-powered cars already out there on the roads. A listener wrote in with a question about those recently. What on earth Rachel Sanders set out to answer it? That's my old beater, a 16-year-old Honda Fit. If the Canadian government has its way, it's a dying breed. The federal government says by 2035, any new car you buy will have to be zero emissions. That makes some people wonder, what about all the gas cars already on the road? How do we deal with that? Most of them, I would guess, are roadworthy. Why can't we do conversions? We do conversions with other things. That's Sharon Card in Courtney, BC. Sharon knows that EVs are in high demand and they're expensive. She wonders if we could help solve those problems and conserve resources if we electrified some of the nearly 24 million gas cars on Canadian roads, like her old Subaru or my Honda Fit. But swapping internal combustion engines for electric motors isn't a simple process. It's not as easy as folks think it is of like just removing the engine and just plopping in electric motors. There's actually a lot involved. There's a lot of engineering involved as well. Sloan Paul is CEO and founder of Arc Motor Company in Peterborough, Ontario. Arc is one of a few companies around Canada that convert gas cars to electric. Sloan and her brother Tom Chep created the company after Sloan couldn't find a shop to electrify her classic 1969 Ford Bronco. Classic cars don't have the reputation of being like really great for the environment. They're gas guzzlers, they're loud. And for me, I'm very conscious of the environment and what I do to impact it. So then I thought, hey, you know, this is a really great opportunity to do something here in Canada. Tom describes the work they do as de-icing cars. Get it? ICE? I-C-E stands for internal combustion engine. It's a good pun, right? So how do they do it? First, they pull out all of the pieces of the drivetrain that use combustion. Once you pull out all the components you don't need, you then have to look at it and figure out where you can put the components that you do need, which isn't always easy. It varies greatly from vehicle to vehicle. We kind of find out what space we have to work with, with 3D scanning. Tom said one of the big challenges is finding the right spot for the large, heavy batteries. They convert classic cars, the kinds of cars that have investment value and that are beloved by their owners, because all of this can be expensive. Their conversions start at around $75,000. But there are a lot of people working on that cost issue, including a team of engineering students at the University of Calgary. The purpose of it is to make 
conversions from ICE vehicles into EVs more affordable because one of the barriers towards having it be a standardized process is the cost. That's Camilla Abdrazakov. She's a mechanical engineering student at the University of Calgary, and she's captain of Team Relectric. And we're also developing our own technologies that are open source, which means that anyone would be able to access it. We're trying to make everything as publicly visible as possible so that people can educate themselves. Camilla says the most expensive thing about conversions is the cost of components. Batteries are expensive. Electric motors are expensive. Integrating power electronics is also expensive. You also need to, you know, add charging systems and you need to add cooling systems. And then you need to make sure that the car goes through a lot of tests to make sure that everything is safe. On that note, before you dive into a car conversion, you'll want to check with your insurer. When it comes to cost, Camilla, who did two internships at Tesla last year, says things are changing fast. I'm pretty hopeful because I think technology is just improving really, really quickly. And so when that happens, all the equipment becomes more affordable. And then the feasibility of having EV conversions is likely to increase. Sloan and Tom with Arc Motor Company agree. They predict there will be more companies popping up making parts and equipment for EVs, and that will help with affordability. And they've come up with an idea that could scale up their efforts. They've been meeting with municipal governments looking to green their fleets of working vehicles. Right now we're mainly focusing on the standard white pickup trucks that every city has running around, but it can be delivery vans or work vans. We're also looking at technology and converting much larger vehicles like dump trucks or snow plows, those things. Sloan thinks governments could encourage more people to convert their cars by offering incentives. For example, a bill making its way through the California State Senate would give people up to $2,000 towards the cost of making their gas-powered cars zero emissions. Some major car manufacturers are now making kits to convert their own cars to electric. But I couldn't find those easy options online for my Honda Fit or Sharon's Subaru. So for now, it looks like we'll be driving our old beaters into the ground. For What on Earth, I'm Rachel Sanders. Thanks, Rachel. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. No one used the words climate change not once during a phone-in meeting with Alberta cabinet ministers dubbed a town hall. It was held a few days ago. Media weren't alerted, but we did manage to listen in. And in the dying days of January, there they were, talking about drought. One that exists now, but stands to get even worse. Snowpack, precipitation, river levels, reservoirs, they're all low. On the call, a top bureaucrat warned that if the extreme level of dryness continues, it will affect everyone in Alberta. It's a societal issue, she said, not an environmental one. 
Then the questions began. One person asked if Albertans might just store some extra water now to get them through the summer. This was part of Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz's response. I mean, that doesn't really help us when we're already in a drought situation and we're really not expecting a lot of snow or rain. Last year, water had to be trucked into some communities. And so Municipal Affairs Minister Rick McIver offered to do his part. Certainly, I have a, a lawn and a sprinkler, and I'm prepared to not turn that sprinkler on all summer if that's what's required to feed the livestock and the crops and the other people. But everyone knows bigger trade-offs must be made. And so for the first time since 2001, all of Alberta's big water users are being summoned to volunteer, to cut back, to share, to do their part. That means agriculture and irrigation, which are the largest users. But then someone asked about another industry. And the question reads, what is the likelihood that water licenses would be stopped altogether for the oil and gas sector? In an urgent conversation about a drought that's lasted years, this was the only question about the fossil fuel industry. Minister Schultz was careful in her response. No mention of the sector's link to climate change. This isn't really going to be about looking at one industry over another. I mean, we recognize that all of us need to come together to look at where we can conserve water, uh, where we may need to reallocate water. When it comes to oil and gas specifically, what we've seen is oil and gas producers uh, are quite responsible and innovative when it comes to their water use. More than once, the ministers and their top bureaucrats called on Albertans to pull together. But Minister Schultz also acknowledged some anger could surface. One example? lush green golf courses. We all know golf courses are very uh, present to people. Uh, You see them driving down the highway. If I I can just see a potential tension if people are watering golf courses and and yet other things can happen. And of course, when we're talking about drought in Alberta, we also have to talk about the farmers because they are watching this very closely. Uh, Producer Molly Siegel is with me now in the studio. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. Yeah, that's what I thought about too with all of this going on is how are the farmers doing? And in particular, I thought of a guy named Tim Ray. He's a rancher and he took me on a tour of his property in August 2020. Yeah, Molly, I remember um, he practices regenerative farming. So I actually went and looked up the episode where you talked to him. And if any other listeners want to hear it, just search online for it. The title is, Is Regenerative Farming Hope for a Hotter Planet? And regenerative farming, as a quick reminder, includes things like no tilling, crop rotation, and moving cattle from pasture to pasture, all practices to help keep soil healthy and keep it storing carbon. And that type of soil generally holds up better in drought conditions. And so that's why I thought of Tim, and I called him up to check in. Hi, Tim. Yes, hello. Uh, Good day. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, sunny, it's not too windy, and I think we're plus seven today. Okay, that seems warm for wintertime in Alberta. Well, he does live an hour outside of Calgary, and warm winds called Chinooks aren't uncommon there, but... There is no doubt, Laura, that this winter is warm. And Tim says there's no snow on the ground there, and there's also been little snow in the mountains. And as we heard, it's enough to have the province preparing for a hot, dry summer. And so is Tim. Normally, he rotates his cattle from pasture to pasture. But this year... Right now, this coming summer, we're planning to not go across our pastures at all. 
and we will put them on a truck and take them to a wetter county about two hours north of us where friends of ours who are essentially semi-retired farmers so they don't have their own cattle herd, they will manage our cattle herd for the summer and hopefully we have good growth and we can bring those cattle back to our rejuvenated pastures. But if we don't have new growth, well, then we're going to be uh, doing that for another year. That seems kind of drastic. When do they need to send the cattle north? Uh, At the end of May, he said. And part of the reason that he is deciding to do this is because he's been here before. He's seen a few very dry years recently. And previously, he's made the decision to go ahead and graze his cattle on his pastures despite that. But he says that doing that made the land so dry. So he's promised himself that he'd never do that again because he doesn't want dry, brittle soil, as he describes it, to turn into a desert. And it's interesting, when I spoke to him, he mentioned that last summer, which was dry, he'd actually won an award. His farm had won an award for their ranching practices, their regenerative practices. And they were touring, he says, hundreds of people around, but all the fields were so dry. So, you know, despite all these practices, like, they're still struggling, right? Obviously, yeah, that sounds tough. Yeah, and so he outlined a number of ways that they're adapting, including selling off their livestock. Now, with each progressive dry year, we keep reducing the number of animals we have. So last year, we grazed about one-third the capacity of our farm to what we were grazing, you know, three years prior. And so imagine your boss comes to you and says, look, um, you're going to do just as much work, but you're only going to get one-third the cash flow. Can you cover your bills and keep working for me? You know, it's it becomes very stressful for farmers. It must be so stressful. How is he actually able to get by? So he has another job, and that's not new. He had another job when I met him in 2020. So he says he's lucky, but there are still a lot of unknowns moving into the future. This environment, this climate... Our practices, they're not what they were. They're not what we thought we knew. We're at a new thing. So I'm uncertain. Um, I'm also not giving up. I told him we wanted to keep checking in with him over the coming months to see how everything's going. He's got such resolve. I'm going to be curious to hear how the season progresses. Thank you, Molly. You're welcome, Laura. happens above ground from the snowpack to the rivers and creeks it has an impact on what happens below ground masaki hayashi has been keeping tabs on that for years he's a hydrologist and a professor with the university of calgary's department of earth energy and environment hello hello you're doing a research project in rocky view county surrounding calgary monitoring well water what story are those wells telling this year yeah, so we have only been monitoring these wells for the last 15 years, but uh, about half of the wells uh, we've been you know, keeping eyes on, they're at the lowest level since we started monitoring. So we are seeing the sign that the groundwater levels are going down with uh, multiple years of uh, dry conditions. Is it, does, it, does this surprise you at all? No, um, in a way not, because the Canadian prairies have this uh, climate that has 
multiple years of wetness followed by multiple years of uh, dryness. So this is not really uh, totally abnormal in, in the sense that this is what happens in the prairies. Right, but it's been, it's been 15 years, and you say this is the lowest it's ever been. Yeah. So what, what happened uh, in the past three years is that we did not have much of a recharge of groundwater, one, two, three consecutive years. And when you say recharge, you mean water getting down into the ground. Yeah. So the you know either rain or snowmelt water hits the ground, and part of that evaporates back or taken up by the plants to the atmosphere. But there's a little bit left. So that goes all the way down to the, uh, the water table, uh, becomes groundwater. So that's called a recharge. And that hasn't been getting there? No. Uh, some aquifers uh, got some recharge, but the, a lot of aquifers were monitoring. They didn't get anything for the last two, three years. Can you tell me what kinds of properties you're looking at here, where, where the wells are? Yeah, so most of these folks uh, who've been working with us are either farmers or uh, the acreage owners. These are rural you know, residential homes uh, with some properties. And in exchange, you, sort of in exchange, I guess, you send out a newsletter to, to the landowners. Uh, in your last newsletter in January, what, what, what was sort of the key thing that you had to tell them? Yeah, the key thing was uh, we have the lowest water level since, you know, we started this. But it's not really dangerously low. So we still have enough to keep us going for a few more years. If we get recharged again in in a few years, we'll be okay. So that was a, the key message. I, I guess typically for those who don't use well water, what, what are they using the well water for? These are primarily used for household water use, so drinking, doing dishes, taking baths. And they've never had to think about it before. It's always been there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm wondering what you're telling, though, the landowners that they can do to deal with the low levels. Yeah, so on individual houses, there's really not much more they can do than what they've been doing, which is to just, you know, conserve, you know, where you can. But, you know, what we really want to emphasize with this kind of program is that so with this uh, what we call the baseline information if there's something strange happening uh, we are able to detect it so for example the decline in the water level we've been seeing in the last two three years is just a natural process because we have dry weather but then on top you have some major new user of groundwater, pumping water from the same aquifer, you're going to see more accelerated drawdown, which is the decline in water level. So that's the way we can keep eyes on the condition well, of aquifers. That, that's the concern, isn't it? I mean, with with drought continuing in Alberta and the warnings about this summer, what if, they, if the next thing people do is go to aquifers, what do the low levels tell you about the state of groundwater or aquifers in that part of southern Alberta? Luckily, uh, we're not in a situation um, like California or some of the, the, the states in the U.S. where a large amount of water is used for agricultural water use, uh, such as irrigation. So in a way, we are not as uh, seriously impacted, but there could be more water use. For example, um, farmland, thousands of acres of farmlands were sold and then just Houses are built. So all these houses uh, uh, require water wells to provide their drinking water supply. So that will be a major shift that uh, we we want to do it sustainably. It it almost sounds as though you're describing a world, and I know you're saying that that, that at this point it's not a, a trend that may continue, 
but it sounds like it might the groundwater and the dependence on it might be on a bit of an edge right now. Yeah, so the province of Alvada has closed, quote unquote, the application for new water use, you know, for river and surface water in some parts of the province. So that means if you know, someone wants to get a new water supply, one avenue is to tap into groundwater. So if that starts to happen at a major scale, uh, so that would be a problem. So that's on the horizon. I think provincial, the water managers are aware of that. Right. Uh, that, and that would be a real threat. Yeah, I, I think so. If uh, that starts to happen at many locations, yeah. If if the province wasn't experiencing drought, you've kind of answered this already, but in simple terms, how would those aquifers normally be replenished? Yeah, so you got several years of dry weather like we've been having, and then we get a year with a big snow melt or maybe big summer rain, and then there is a big jump in the water level in the aquifer, and uh, that happens every three or four years. How is climate change affecting that? Yeah, so that's a, a big, big question, and then we uh, scientists don't really understand. Um, so with the climate change story, there are some that are clearly established that everybody understands. For example, temperature is rising. With that, the intensity of moisture circulation in the Earth's system is you know, accelerating. So those are you know, well-established. But then when it comes to specific processes at a specific location, uh, there are many things uh, that are interacting with each other and we don't know. For example, we know that the snow melt is important for groundwater recharge in the prairies. And we also know that snow is going to decrease. Uh, more rain, less snow, and the snow accumulation starts Later in the year, snow melt starts earlier in the year. So that much we know. But then to translate that into the amount and timing of groundwater recharge, uh, there are still a lot of processes that we don't understand about. I, I'm wondering then, as a scientist, you look to data. You don't look at the policy decisions. But I'm wondering what message you would share with Albertans as they work to find solutions to what is shaping up to be a challenging year. Yeah, uh, so I think that what province and the municipal governing bodies need to do is to ensure that any new use of groundwater is done in a sustainable manner, looking at the recharge and then decide how much more water use we allow you know, for the new development. What is at stake if the aquifers start to be used by, as you say, more home developments or even by the agriculture industry? What's at stake? Yeah, so there are two things. Uh, One is that existing water users, uh, some wells might go dry. That means it's a loss of the lifeline for these people. So these are, you know, multi-generation farmers who have been using groundwater uh, to sustain their living. So they either have to drill deeper if they're lucky, then you, you, they can drill deeper, get more water, but they drill really deep in the bottom of the aquifer, and then there's not much you can do. So that's one. The second, equally important, is that the groundwater comes out to the ground surface from springs. So the, all the little creeks you see, they're all fed by little springs. So if the water level in the aquifer goes down, the Spring water, you know, the flow rate will be reduced or even some springs may go dry. 
Well, that means creeks will go dry. So that's a really bad news for the environment. So those two things are the ones that uh, I think are most important. So much at stake, Masaki Hayashi. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we've spent the last several minutes talking about change, uncertainty, not knowing how to cope with the future. And over the course of of my years on this earth, I've seen change in a lot of it. And I'll admit some of it has made me pretty sad. Growing up on the North Shore of Vancouver, I came to depend on summers that were warm but not scorching and smoke-free. There's never any question about the bounty of salmon in the rivers and the oceans. My dad used to go out fishing and then bring a fish home for dinner. Now so much of that has changed. And in a sense, I grieve for what was, and I'm not alone. I think the first experience of a kind of ecological sadness for me was when I was growing up in Southern California. I went for a walk and some of the foothills that I was very familiar with from my day-to-day life had been completely bulldozed to make room for some new housing. And it literally stopped me in my tracks. That's Jason Brown. He teaches religious studies and environmental ethics at Simon Fraser University in BC. And those feelings he and I are having, they're the inspiration for a pilot project he just started, SFU's Ecological Chaplaincy. It's a program that brings students spiritual care when they're experiencing climate-related distress. And Jason, what have your students been saying to you about those feelings? So my students, to generalize, have expressed just this sort of low-level and background anxiety about uh, what's coming or what's happening when there's uh, weird weather or uh, wildfire smoke. Some of them admit almost flippantly, that they don't want to have kids or they think it might be irresponsible to have children. Others feeling hopeless and helpless, so they they are almost not sure why they're continuing with their degrees, if it feels like the future is kind of slipping between their fingers. Okay, I want to bring someone else into the conversation now. Ernest Ung is SFU's Buddhist chaplain. Ernest, do you hear similar things from students about climate grief? I would say yes. Um, part of it is the anxiety because it seems like such a like enormous problem that, that no one knows how to fix. And I think another side of it is like they are students or they are learning. They are trying to see like how to fix the problem. But it seems like they are not like in control. Like it seems like the previous generations or or, or rest of community are still quite oblivious to to what they are really really care and concerned about. So there are quite a bit of disconnect. Um, there are quite a bit of uh, helplessness, as as Jason mentioned. And also, I think deep inside there is a, a deep sense of anxiety and sadness. Not quite sure like whether we can resolve out of this mess or, or these like problems that we have created. So, Jason, let me come back to you. Why do you feel that religion, or maybe spirituality more generally, could help students at your university tackle climate grief and anxiety? Oh, well, I think the climate crisis is a deeply religious problem. And so religious, like you say, religion with a small r. So not not an institution or an identity, but an impulse 
uh, of the human species to make meaning with our lives, to, to seek purpose. And so you could, some people would prefer to say spirituality, but uh, the way I talk about religion in my religious studies classes is that religion is a, is a deeply human activity for making meaning and seeking purpose, whether or not we end up identifying or participating in a particular institution. Ernest, what does Buddhism have to say about humans' relationship with the environment and with climate? Yeah, that, that's a very good question because like many, uh, of course, I will see Buddhism as a religion. But, but I think an important uh, learning like from, from our teaching is to really like, uh, understand ourselves and also understand our relationship with the nature and the world. Uh, I think one important teaching and one important perspective is to see our interconnectedness uh, with the nature in the world. Very often when we talk about the nature, we talk about the ecosystem as if like we are outside of it, like we are not part of it. So by seeing that like deep relationship that we have, like we are inseparable from the nature and the ecosystems, then we can start to see like we're actually dealing with our left hand and right hand, right? Like how can we separate our left hand and right hand and see this is not our problem? And our uh, activities, our economic growth and, and our anxiety also feed into the nature and vice versa as well. What are some Buddhist traditions and practices that, that help to address the anxiety and the grief? We have three very core teachings in terms of uh, mindfulness. Like, I think in a more uh, normal terms, I will say like awareness. We develop deeper awareness on our own feelings, sensations, anxiety, uh, and also uh, in terms of our behavior. Uh, on the other hand, like, in terms of our moral actions, because like, all our actions have a moral implication and consequence. And finally, it's wisdom. Like, we need to figure out like, a smarter way to consume and produce and our relationship with the rest of the world so that we're not causing harm. So that um, notion of not causing harm is very important to the Buddhist teaching as well, of compassion. Uh, Jason, let me come back to you. The, the pilot project just launched in January, but in the future, I'm wondering how you hope the program will incorporate other chaplains, other religious traditions? Ecological chaplaincy is a great way to engage people from all different backgrounds. So we can talk about the interfaith dialogue related to the environment. And interfaith typically means those communities who self-identify with a religion. But the interesting thing that we're seeing in our, our times is that a lot of people are letting go of labels and identifications with religion. And so one of the words that I use for that is an interpath dialogue. That would include dialogue with indigenous peoples, uh, conversations about reconciliation, but also the unaffiliated or the so-called nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S, the, the none of the above category. Mm -hmm. And so not only does the ecological chaplaincy attempt to, to start conversations about climate anxiety and climate grief, but I think it also opens up the possibility of spiritual care to those who may not identify with any of the really uh, amazing you know, faith-based resources that the multi-faith center offers. Do you have any examples of how spirituality can help tackle climate grief? You know, Ernest talked about the practice of mindfulness meditation that's very common in the Buddhist traditions, but also exists in other faiths as well. But something that's important to me is a practice that I call placefulness. So in a sense, uh, being 
aware and present to the place that you find yourself, you know, right outside your front door to the neighborhood or the regional or provincial park that you like to walk in, but really paying attention to the place and developing a deeper relationship to the place will not only help us grapple with the relationship between immigrants, settlers, and indigenous peoples in this in that sort of political issue, but also how we might respond to the place as it changes due to climate change. So it's not just a romanticism of nature, because sometimes uh, smoky skies or flooding, that's not a very romantic picture. But if you're aware of the place, if you're attuned to the place, the love you feel for it will keep you connected to it. But you, your own connection to forests, for example, would that be, would you see getting out into the forest and, and, and just experiencing it part of, of something that would help? Absolutely. And so not only uh, are we going to gather in talking circles with the chaplaincy program, but we're going to host uh, mindful forest walks up at Burnaby Mountain. Uh, there's lovely forest up there. We are very rich, forest rich in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And so my antidote, my the medicine that we offer is all around us. Um, and so it's just a matter of uh, naming it, organizing it, and giving people confidence to get up from their desks or put down their phones and go outside and breathe more deeply and to feel their bodies and to feel the air around them and to start paying attention to the world. And so that's kind of, in some ways, the beauty of grief is that you asked at the beginning, you know, an experience of grief. And honestly, the first thing I thought of wasn't sadness, but love. And I think that grief and love are deeply entangled and deeply intertwined. And so if we want to talk about climate grief, we have to talk about love. Jason Brown and Ernest Ung, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Laura. You're welcome. And remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you find our whole back catalog. I know a lot of you have already listened to our show from a couple of weeks ago called When It's Really Freaking Cold Out, Is Green Power a Solution? But if you haven't heard it, head over to the feed. And while you're there, leave us a review. Even better, tell a friend about us. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. And special thanks this week to George Baker and Allison Dempster. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.